Welcome to Founding Impact, where we talk about impact startup ecosystem in Europe. I'm Maciej Gałkiewicz. And I'm Kasia Zalewska. We are Impact Angel Investors from Ragnarsson. Hello guys, welcome back to Founding Impact. Uh, today our guest is Mark Darno from Rockstart AgriFood. He's a big believer in food industry and that's what we're going to talk about today. Hey Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Hello, hello. Um, as we said, it's great to have you and we're going to talk about food industry, but not only, uh, because I would like to start with uh, a little bit of your history. I know it's a bit unusual, uh, considering where you ended up uh, being an investor in food, but without like a financial, strict financial background. So can you tell us a little bit, how did you end up in impact? Yeah, um, not by design. That's for sure. Um, I really, I really, uh, I, so my, my background is I, I, I'm from Scotland originally, grew up with farming and agriculture in the northeast of Scotland, and we have a, have a family farm there, which was mixed production. Uh, so dairy and, and beef cattle, but also arable production, um, and at one point even chickens. So I've always grown up with food and agriculture being really close to me. Um, I strangely left the farm and went and became a lawyer uh, in Scotland and practiced law in Scotland for a few years in my 20s. Um, and then I had a kind of a mid-20s crisis, you might say, um, because I was kind of spending all my time doing law. I pr probably wasn't a particularly good lawyer um, either. And then, and then I, I, came, I kind of came to reassess what I was working on, where I was spending my time. And I realized that most of my spare time was going towards uh, agriculture, farming, and specifically looking at that time, um, and, and, and this is like 15 years ago now, uh, was looking at organic farming. So I thought, okay, let's give this a shot. Um, and, and started organic farming in my mid-20s, um, got rather frustrated at some of the inefficiencies uh, in, that, that we see in organic farming because the, the principles and the, the values behind it are very good, but the, the, the actual execution is sometimes somewhat bureaucratic. Uh, and, that, and from there, it kind of just over the last 12, 15 years, it's just evolved to the point where I was just trying to solve problems all the time. That invariably led me towards entrepreneurship, Entrepreneurship led me towards agri-tech and, and the, the role that technology can play for impact. And, and that then five years ago led me towards uh, investing and, and, and joining Rockstar. And, and ultimately, uh, so as I say, it's not it's really not by design. I've just over the last uh, couple of decades been trying to solve things that frustrate me. And uh, now I'm in this fantastic um, position that I can hopefully help other entrepreneurs uh, be, by giving them access to, to either finances or introductions to the, the, the industry um, to help them solve some problems. So, yeah. That's, that's kind of how I got Th Thank you so much for uh, for this uh, short uh, intro and uh, sharing a bit of your story. I'm always curious uh, when we speak with different guests uh, about um, like how they actually ended up in the place that they are. So you mentioned it wasn't really by design, but would you rather say it was more of um, an evolution mm. uh, or there was some sort of like a um, trigger point that like the tipping point that's really... Uh, uh, it was this aha moment saying, okay, I really need to go there. And this is, this is where everything, uh, when everything changed. Uh, yeah, there was a, mo there was kind of a, a moment I could probably point to, which was, um, in <clears throat> 2009, I was working on an organic farm over in Switzerland and I met, um, um, a, a, a Swiss businessman called Roman Gauss who was starting up a company called Urban Farmers. And um, the concept there was to use aquaponic, which is a combination of um, hydroponic, uh, um, like vegetable production alongside aquaculture. So the production of fish, and it's this closed loop. So it, it, it just, 
it completely raptured me. I was completely uh, obsessed with what this solution could do because it was it was almost fully circular. It was producing protein. It was producing vegetables. It was allowing consumers to get closer to the product, so so people could have more transparency. Um, it, it was it was. It just really inspired me. So in, in 2010, I um, used up all the last of my savings to kind of finance myself to be part of the startup team there and, and start working on this thing. So that was really the moment that I moved away from being like, okay, I'm doing organic farming to thinking more how we're going to future-proof um, our food system and thinking much bigger in terms of the impact that maybe I as an individual might be able to have. Yeah. So, um, what what specifically uh, was was so um, interesting to you in, in that solution? Was it like the sophistication of technology or transparency, as you as like you mentioned? Like, what, what was it exactly? Um, <clears throat> so, some of the, some of the topics that I'd been working on myself prior to meeting Roman and and Andreas, the other co-founder who was there, they, they deserve a lot of credit for the work that they did. Um, prior to meeting them, I'd been um, looking at circularity, I've been looking at waste streams, I've been looking at communication to the consumer. So how is it that we can get the 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 real heritage and the real quality and 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 the 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 whole story of the product um, make it accessible for the consumer? And also how to inspire people to actually engage with farming and agriculture. So and and this this solution was so neat. It was the idea was to put uh, greenhouses on the rooftops of supermarkets. And uh, you've literally got transparent production. It's a greenhouse, it's glass. So the consumer is, is going into a store and they know that the salads and the fish that they're buying in the store is upstairs and it was harvested that morning. And we took it to the next level as well. I mean, we, we were also, um, when we, we decided to really open up the, uh, like we had a whole section of the greenhouses that were, were dedicated to um, uh, the consumers being able to come in, harvest their own product. We had um, open kitchens so that they could cook their product and experiment with different recipes and stuff and really trying to inspire them. So it was so many things in one package. And at the time when I joined, there was obviously, there was really nothing there, at least physically the, the product didn't exist and the technology still had to be uh, developed. There was the, the basis from the, the, the university lab that we were working from, but other ever, like commercially it all had to be developed. So I think what it did was, I'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd um, I really like reading science fiction and I like science fiction movies and what this all did <laughs> you as well because yeah yeah um, it, it just everything about it felt futuristic and I thought why can't why wouldn't we have a future where we've got you know greenhouses on the rooftops of supermarkets and, and people can yeah can access it so it was, it was just it was everything in one package that's what inspired me yeah. Uh, changing a topic a bit, since you were one of the, let's say, starters of this new new movement uh, in the new ways of farming, are you happy with the direction that uh, that it took right now? That it's this big focus on vertical farming, the huge hype about those big uh, companies uh, producing salads and some herbs, or you think it should have been a bit different? Do you hope for some some different outcome? Yeah, I'm not 100% positive about the direction it's taken, to be honest. If you look at the Rockstar portfolio, we don't have any vertical farming companies in that portfolio. And perhaps it's because of my own bias and I'm too close to the industry, uh, having been been there myself. So I'm very, very, very critical of, of technologies. Um, I think a couple of things have, have happened. One is that the promise of price parity and affordability of, of, of the produce is still not really there. Um, whichever way you look at it, the OPEX and the CAPEX for uh, um, for controlled environment vertical farm is just higher. 
A second thing that I find somewhat frustrating is that so many entrepreneurs are going out and making the same mistakes as each other. So there's not enough sharing of, um, of insights and knowledge in the industry. If I see another huge warehouse being turned into a, a multi-story vertical farm uh, without any consideration for the microclimate of the, the salad itself, I'm going to tear my hair out because it's just like you, you've, the intentions from the entrepreneurs are really, really good, but it's like there's a four or five year learning curve that they have to go through on the technology and that's slowing, slowing progress down. So I would like to see a lot more sharing of, of, of best practices of technologies in that space. And then the third thing I would say about Can it is Can you just, that, uh, just yeah, sorry, briefly explain yeah. what, what's the problem with the warehouses? Why, why it's not like the best idea to, to pursue it like that? Well, so you're, first of all, you're limited on the type of production that you have. So it's mostly leafy greens uh, that you can produce in, in these vertical farms. Um, now, a leafy green, a salad, is maybe the size of a football at, at its largest point. It really doesn't care what's happening five meters from its existence. You need to take care of the microclimate around that. So that means the roots need a healthy environment with good access to nutrients. Um, that means that the, the leaves need to be to have the right wavelength of, of light for photosynthesis and you need to have the right temperature. Um, you need to have the right, hopefully you've got some sort of air, circul air circulation as well so that you don't have um, uh, heat sandwiches, basically, if I, if I can use a non-technical term, which is where you get different temperatures at different layers of the plant. So it's very simple, really, the, the salad or the leafy green that you're producing is just caring about what's happening ex immediately around it. Uh, when when the um, when these warehouses are designed, they're designed with a climate control for the warehouse. Whereas I think the best solutions, and there are there are companies out there that are doing that, that, that are doing a really good job of it. Like Plant Lab, I really respect what Plant Lab are doing. They're based out of the Netherlands, and they really look at the the, the health and the microclimate of the individual plant. But if you're if you're doing climate control on a warehouse level, you can't really know what's happening on a on a salad level. Uh, on, a, on a smaller level. So then you don't need to have these warehouses with these enormous big trays and open space. You'd actually be better off to have smaller enclosed chambers where you can really control the, the specific environment. That's that's what I meant by that. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. and I, I just wanted to also share the, la the last thing is that these um, there's been quite a few um, SPACs, SPACs, uh, mm -hmm. where, where, where companies have raised um, pretty impressive amounts of money on the, on the, the back of a promise. But... I've yet to see how uh, production of salad can live up to those expectations. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm aligned with the direction that we want to go in, but I think there needs to be a bit more humility um, in getting there because at the end of the day, this is still farming, right? So mm -hmm. uh, having, having multi-billion dollar valuations um, when you, your turnover is still only a few million is Hopefully, it's not going to let the consumers down. That's, that's kind of where uh, I, I have the yeah. same feeling. Unless I see a carrot or a pumpkin coming out of those, uh, I'm, I will stay skeptic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, vertical farming uh, is like one of the one of the topics you were uh, especially involved with. But um, as a fund manager at Rockstart, um, is there anything especially interesting to you and important as of as of now? Because I mean, you you mentioned a bit that you might be a bit biased towards uh, vertical farming, and this is not really what you invested in. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about other um, categories of products. I think, um, personally speaking, yeah. uh, anything that's looking at a reduction or or better utilization of waste streams. I really like. Um, I like the 
the principle that we can do, we can use more of what we already produce before having to come up with solutions to produce more. I really like that. It's uh, it's about working with what the planet can give us. It's about um, creating new revenue streams and opportunities for farmers uh, who, who perhaps that perhaps weren't there before. Um, and it's also about uh, creating value where there wasn't value um, originally. So I really like, and, and that can be any number of, if I use some examples, um, it, it can be taking a waste stream and upcycling it into something new. So for example, uh, we work with, uh, we invested in a couple of companies. One is Beyond Leather Materials. They use apple pulp from the cider brewing industry, and then they turn that into vegan leather. Um, or Reduced, which is a company in Denmark who take um, waste streams, side streams from the food industry, and then they use um, accelerated fermentation to create new products like, for example, stock, or they've got this uh, kind of umami flavor um, um, addition that you can use for, for sauces. Um, or uh, it can also be that you're, uh, you're using technology to, um, to be able to make better decisions. So for example, a company called Invisible Foods in the Netherlands, and what they do is they've got a, um, a, a camera that can assess the shelf life of, uh, of specific products and then advise the, um, the, the farmer or the, or the wholesaler what market channel to bring them into. And I just love the, I love the fact that these solutions are using um, are helping us to use what we already have, as opposed to trying to, you know, produce more of something or um, or, or or trying to increase yield uh, on on an acre basis, for example. Yeah, I, I must say it's uh, it's visible among your last uh, batch. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a mentor at at Rockstart, uh, yeah. collaborating with some of the companies uh, from from the accelerator, and uh, at least in the latest batch, I'm referring to uh, Food for All and uh, Flow Waste. Definitely two solutions uh, around in this space, uh, fighting to to reduce uh, food waste. Um, so this is uh, this is cool. And so your interest is, uh, let's say, more into like optimizing what we already have, as as you said, as opposed to um, higher production. But if we take a bit a moment for a, like make a step back and look at at a at the landscape um, more general, more general. Um, I remember that uh, I watched your uh, episode with Git uh, Kosla, a uh, very cool, very cool episode I could recommend to, to anyone. And you mentioned in it that um, the industry has really changed rapidly over the last 10 years. And um, my question would be, what's, what do you think triggered this change? And uh, what's, what's kind of the main force uh, shaping, shaping the industry as of now? Hmm. Um, that's a good one. There, there are multiple element, uh, elements to this answer, of course. There are lots of things that, 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 that trigger change. I think over the last 10 years, what we saw a decade ago was that um, the pressure or challenges that were inherent within the food industry, which is a, a relatively old-fashioned, fragmented industry at, at large. I mean, there is sophisticated corners of it. I don't want to be too critical, but um, but it, it, it's fairly it's fairly clunky and uh, and, and old-fashioned in many ways. I mean, you still yeah. use paper to to record uh, certain transactions at the border of, of different countries, for example. So these pressures. Um, rather than looking at them as annoying challenges we had to live with, suddenly you had an influx of entrepreneurs who saw them as opportunities. So I think um, I think thanks to uh, a kind of um, 
this the same movement that has been experienced for energy towards the the, the, the renewable energy transition, the same pressures and, and movement that we saw with technology being applied to the financial industries with fintech, you, you see something similar happening in the food industry. And the first influx was maybe 10 years ago, where um, the, the, especially in North America, where you saw entrepreneurs applying technologies to, to solve things like vertical farming, for example, and seeing an opportunity there. And that's really snowballed to the point where now, um, in, you know, in, it, it, we're now reimagining uh, what the food industry and the largest players in that food industry will be. If you look at cell cultured meats or plant-based alternatives to meat products, that's boomed in the last four years. Uh, it's, it's, it's enormous. So to answer the question, I think it's a combination of um, um, open-minded entrepreneurs with uh, a, a vision on how technology can improve things and uh, seeing, the seeing the challenges in the industry as opportunities as opposed to um, uh, just just frustrating elements that we've had to live with over the years. Yeah. Uh, from yeah. your perspective, that's, that's not, yeah. I should I should also mention of thing, things like, for example, regulations play a role, right? So um, the governments do play quite a central role in the food industry as well. So that that like if you look at the role um, that governments play when it comes to and regulators play, um, there are some areas where they've helped the transition a little bit as well. Usually, I'm quite critical because they're bureaucratic, but it's just like, I should I should give them a heads up as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, one, yeah, one of the recent changes is also like the huge influx of money um, into the industry. There are like the investors are growing like mushrooms after rain, uh, as we say in Polish, using a food reference. Uh, so there is a lot of those people that want to invest in food. Uh, but I think part of it is this big hype created by like meat alternatives, by uh, vertical farming. Do you think knowing the industry a bit longer than all those uh, newcomers, are there still any spaces that are undervalued or underestimated by investors, but have a huge impact potential and that it's like it has to happen that we will have to look at those sooner or later? Um, yes, and, and maybe to start to just give some context to how the, the, to the jump in funding that we're seeing, year-on-year -year growth of investments in, in, in VC investments in, in agri-food and uh, agri-tech and food tech startups uh, was 35%, um, with around about 26 billion being invested. Um, and then if you look at climate tech as a as a broader theme uh, in Europe, where, where Rockstart sits on um, the uh, basically a kind of a, a a committee that helps to advise the EU Commission on how best to allocate funding and resources. It's, it's called Clean Tech for Europe. And what we saw is that in 2017, there was 1.7 billion euros invested into clean tech uh, themes. Uh, last year, it was 11 billion. So there's, yeah, and, th and that was that was a 100% jump on 2020. So between 20, 2020 was like 4.8, 4.9 billion, and then 2021 was 11 billion. So that gives a bit of a, a, a context to the scale of growth and, and excitement that we're seeing in the industry. Um, I think one area to, to, to come to the, the question uh, that, I, that I believe is somewhat underserved at the moment or is perhaps misunderstood is regenerative agriculture. Um, I think regenerative ag, especially if you look at it from a climate perspective, can be so impactful. Um, you know, if we put some numbers to it, we're, we're emitting somewhere between 40 and 45 billion tons of CO2 per year on the planet. Um, soil and plants are absorbing 30% of that. So by taking care of our soil, by, by having healthier soil that's uh, more, more um, efficient and um, 
and uh, you, you can, I mean, depending which report you read, you can easily draw down another billion tons um, in soil alone, not including the, the, the plants and everything else you're growing on top of that. Um, so from an impact perspective, that's really interesting. And from a commercial perspective, it's also interesting because uh, it, it creates a really big challenge for the farmer. When you're making a transition to regenerative agriculture, in the first three years of production, your yield will drop somewhere uh, to about by, by a factor of about 30 to 80 percent, depending on the crop that you're growing. So you imagine one year to the next, you've got 80 percent less produce. That's 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 such a huge challenge. So what I really like are these these really big tough challenges that if we can solve them and create uh, commercial solutions that farmers can implement, it will have a very positive impact on on, on the planet going forwards. Um, yeah, so I think regenerative ag as a theme is under is under underserved at the moment. Yeah. I, I would love to dive a bit uh, deeper into this uh, since we've been also looking at all sorts of regenerative agriculture solutions, uh, mm -hmm. considering them as, as potential investments. But maybe before that we start, uh, can you just briefly explain to our audience what regenerative agriculture is about um, so we have a better understanding of what, what we are talking about? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so most people will be familiar with organic food production. So organic is working off a, a set of principles where you're not using chemical fertilizers or pesticides uh, on, on the land and you're, you're trying to um, use as many natural inputs as, as possible. Um, regenerative ag is like the next step beyond. So that's really looking at how you can treat the soil to increase, um, uh, basically increase soil health with, um, with uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of how to put this in, a, in, a, in an easy to understand way. If you imagine that the soil is like skin, uh, of uh, that 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 is is filled with nutrients and it's also it's also alive right so you've got microbes in there it's also got its own climate um, it's also got its own pH it's got its own temperature it's basically doing everything that you can to ensure that that soil is as healthy and as as biodynamic as possible so that the uh, plants that you're growing on there are getting the best access to nutrients and also the best protection to their root systems and then you're getting a very healthy um, uh, um, a, a healthy product that comes out at the end of that without the need for pesticides, without the need for chemicals. Um, it's also going a kind of step further than organic does in terms of looking at how you can have um, um, companion crops alongside each other, looking at how you can use lays and use different uh, grass and clover seedings, which they do in organic as well, to improve soil health. So it's really looking holistically at the health of the soil and everything else evolves from there. And what I like about the regenerative agriculture approach as well is that it's a, it's much more nuanced than, uh, than some of the narratives on the food industry that we see. So for example, livestock plays a very important role in regenerative agriculture, um, which means that we should have sheep, for example, who are hill, hill grazing and um, adding nutrients back into the, the, the soil and tramping down um, uh, plants and grazing that grass down. And like that, that's, that's how it was intended for the ecosystem to be. So to put it, I'm rambling a little bit now, but to put it into simple terms, regenerative agriculture is trying to look at how you can, um, you can basically reinstall the, the natural ecosystem uh, and still have a very productive and, and, and healthy yield of, of crop coming off the, the, the field. Got it. So now it was really great that you uh, um, uh, referenced it to to organic farming. I think it, it gives like a better understanding also for, for everyone what, what it actually is. And yeah. now you mentioned this space is especially underdeveloped. What's uh, you know what's what are the problems? Why are, why is it not growing? Um, I, there are solutions out there. 
and and you see, for example, a lot of um, a lot of active plant uh, um, uh, plant-based alternatives to chemical and um, uh, chemical fertilizers, for example, or um, or a lot of um, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting a distraction because something's beeping at me. Sorry, guys, two seconds. No worries. I think it's why my washing machine. This is the joy of working from home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So where was I? I? Yes. So there are solutions out there, right? So there, there are a number of biotech companies that are doing really interesting things to provide solutions as, uh, with alternatives to, to, to chemical, uh, the chemical solutions that we use today. The challenges that they face is, is number one is regulatory. So it usually takes somewhere between 18 months to two years to be able to get into a new market because you have to go through a, a certain number of trials. Uh, you need to partner up with universities. You need to partner up with three or four farmers who will back the product. Uh, and then in Europe, in the European context, we have 28 member states all with their own regulatory pathway. So in order to scale your business and actually uh, and, and, and also remain attractive to the VC investors, how are you going to overcome that regulatory barrier? Um, you've also got uh, the, the customer, the client here is the farmer. Uh, if you think of the context of a farmer, um, they maybe have 40 um, seasons in their life that they'll be able to to farm. Now imagine making decisions based on only 40 data sets. And that's that's at the end of the lifespan of your of your business. So maybe if you're halfway through, you have 20 data sets to look at. So that means it's a very conservative approach to using these new products that are coming out and, and farmers need time to build trust and to also see that the uh, the products are indeed helping their business and not just uh, not just creating more risk that they, they don't really want to to, to bring in. Um, and then I think there's all there's also uh, it's many of these solutions are quite technical. Um, so it's it's there, there's a biotech element to this, and if you've got generalist VCs who are applying um, uh, general VC principles to the industry, it's really difficult for them to see how there can be a, a, a payback within a short period of time, um, and that that limits the amount of capital going into that space. So you you, you kind of need to have a, um, a a technical team on the investor side who who can also then support those businesses. So I think the access to capital. Is, is a little bit tricky. Um, and then the fourth thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll stop because you've probably got another part to the question, <laughs> is um, you've, you've also still only got a certain like certain number of players in that space, for example, Basef, Bayer, Syngenta. Um, and also, you could also start to include the likes of Nestle and Unilever, who are looking more seriously at their whole food supply chain uh, and, and, and trying to help farmers uh, transition. But because you've only got a few big players who are serving that space, and then you've got a lot of startups in the space, then it's really difficult for um, for those companies to, to 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 get the right scaling partners, basically. Um, so those are four reasons. Meaning why that without the diversity of like big players, it's it's more difficult for startups to um, to find the right one. The yeah, right it's, it's more yeah it's more difficult for startups to get the partner in the first place because it's a very mm -hmm. it, it ends up being a very competitive space, mm -hmm. and then you've only actually got a few large companies to to partner with who let's face it, are also experts in this themselves. So they're also developing their own alternative products to move away from chemical um, uh, uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So um, so that makes it quite tricky for, for some entrepreneurs and startups to, to get the, the attention, the scaling partners that they need in the market. Got it. Thank you so much for a, for a comprehensive overview uh, on, the, on yeah. that topic. Like from, from our perspective, I think what we mostly see is the, the risks that farmers are taking uh, so when you look at this, at the whole supply chain, uh, the, the the food chain, uh, food production, uh, founders, farmers are the ones that are taking relatively the biggest risks 
uh, and also get the lowest returns from it. So for them, like switching from to from something like as as you said with those data sets, if if I've been doing something for twenty years like that, and all of a sudden I need to change everything, and really the methods are different, the the way you you treat your um, your field. Um, simply like a huge unknown and obviously there are some smart guys telling me that based on the numbers it's going to get better uh, the whole the sale is going to get better the the revenue is going to increase because there's going to be more produce and and so on but you know i'm the one with this experience and know those guys so i, I think it's it might be very difficult for for farmers to take this leap of faith yeah it, it really is and I, and it's also you have to remember the context here is that the farmer is at the very bottom of, of, of this overall supply chain. They're, the, they're one of the most important um, stakeholders in it, but they're treated quite poorly in the sense that um, many of the crops, maybe the foods that we're eating today, they're there on the table because they're subsidized, which mm -hmm. means that for farmers to actually produce that food just off, off their own back, it's, there's, no, there's, there's not actually a commercial business case that, that allows them to do that. So the whole system is set up to ensure that the farmer is producing basically at break even and the retailers as well. I mean, they, they have to take some accountability here. They've got uh, transparent pricing in place. So that means that everybody along the supply chain knows how much it costs for the farmer to produce their product. And then they've got a very thin margin that they put on top of that so that they can maximize margins as they get further downstream in the, the supply chain. So that's another reason for farmers to be very risk averse is to say, well, we're already really struggling to get this business to, to, to work and to, um, to stay afloat. And now you're asking me to try something new that could have a negative impact on my yield or it could have a negative impact on the quality of the produce. They just don't want to take that risk. I, I know Ragnarsson are also looking, you guys are also looking at, um, at, uh, at regenerative agriculture. What, uh, maybe just, what, what, what is it that's interesting within your thesis? What do you look at? I, I would say from our perspective, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool because um, based on the, on the data that we analyzed, the closer you are to the farmer and to the field, the higher the potential impact. You can make some impact in the retail space as well, like with packaging, with distribution, with transportation, but nothing has such a huge potential as the way you treat your field. Um, if, if you have trees, if you uh, like use uh, appropriate methods to, to make sure that uh, uh, soil is not, not being... Um, 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 what do you do with the soil? Um, that it's treated well <laughs> and it's not losing all, the, all of its nu nutrients. Depleted, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Depleted, yeah. So uh, from this perspective, if we, 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 we always try to think in, in terms of like... Um, how much how much money we need to spend to to get a, a certain level of, of impact and just uh, it, it's pretty logical for us to to go a bit closer to to the field uh, as opposed to like optimizing logistics of the of the last mile uh, yeah. in the food uh, in the food system uh, yeah. and maybe maybe speaking about impact um, it would be really curious because like at the beginning of your story the, I, f I think the one of the main motivations um, for you to to really explore this space, I mean, apart from the from the background that you have, that simply you had a, a, a your family had a farm, and obviously you had a lot of experiences with it. But you keep you keep mentioning like transparency, like the close circular systems, like everything that would be super cool for us to have in the long run to be sustainable and uh, regarding our food production. So when you analyze companies how do you how do you take into account such such measures so mm. what do you what kind of impact do you expect from companies to have at the beginning and how it how it changes over time 
Um, yeah, good one. So we don't believe that we have every answer. Uh, so the, the starting point for the investment thesis is that we keep it quite broad. We look holistically at the whole system from soil to gut. And then we've kind of got three core challenges that we try and solve when we're, when we're assessing a startup and we think whether or not that solution can help solve something within that challenge. So the three challenges are, number one, optimization of processes and practices. How do we make things, uh, how do we get more granular data capture? How do we make things more transparent and, 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 and communication better? Number two, reduction food loss, food waste. And number three, enabling a quantifiable consumer. So that means anything that helps the consumer know what it is that they're eating and, 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 and what they're buying. So those are three very broad challenge topics. And then when we're making an assessment of a startup, it's really looking at in the lens of, well, which of those three challenges, maybe sometimes all three of them, the, the solution or the technology contributes to it. And if it does contribute to it, how? Like, are, are we looking um, in the long term? Is this something where we could measure in terms of CO2 reduction or sequestration? Is this something where we could measure, um, for example, at one point we were, we were looking at the number of data points that you'd be able to share with consumers. Um, and that, that, that's got a social impact because you get to know where the product comes from. So we, we, we really look at it um, in, in terms of how the, the, the product or service uh, is, is whether or not there's a, 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 an impact element at the very core of the solution and then how that plays back into the overall kind of vision that we have for the, the, the food system. Um, yeah, I think, I think the other thing to mention on this is that early stage companies, we're investing at pre-seed and seed phase. Um, I think that sometimes there's this expectation that the company, at, at, even at conception, should be able to provide you with some sort of uh, impact metric or, or provide the, either the investors or the, 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 um, the customers with some sort of rating or some sort of quantification about what their footprint is, et cetera. I don't really subscribe to that. I think at the early stage of your company, you just have the, in, the good intentions and ambition to do something positive for the planet. And you're just trying to figure out how to get that, that product or service to be viable. And then once it starts actually fitting and there's a customer that's, that's, that's using it and so forth, then at that point, when you're really, you have a business and a product, then you can start putting attention and focus towards what the actual impact is. So we take that thesis forward with the startups as well. We don't put a lot of pressure on them at the early stages of the investment. We, when they start looking at, for example, life cycle analysis, and when they start looking at scope one, two, and three, and, and where their, their overall impact is in the supply chain, then we connect them up with the right people. Um, and the, the, the right kind of consultants that we trust that can help them to come up with a scoring and a metric. And then the last point of that journey, which is usually when the startup get into a scaling phase, like a series A round, is we help them to, um, to come up with a kind of algorithm that, that links the, um, the business activity or a business unit, whether it's number of products sold or whether it's revenue, to, uh, um, to, to then link that into what the impact metric is. So that again, from a reporting perspective, it's not overly burdensome, and it also it ensures that the impact stays very central to the business. So that's that's how we look at it. Basically, we start very very broad and and, and conceptualize it, and then over the years, as the product and the service become more and more definite and sophisticated, then we can start to really measure and report. From your experience. Um... Do you think it's possible to create such a system of uh, measuring impact uh, per every startup that you have something like quite a common to all of them that could be used for you as an investor and on the later stages to unify the way we measure the impact or you think it, we're still not there? It's one of the things that investors are struggling, as we know. Yeah. Do you think it could happen the, the, the right way? Do that 
we will see the like the common measures so we can i don't know compare or or get like the better overview of what happened and what's what's the impact i think i think it will happen i think we you know i think in order one of the most efficient ways to assess progress is to have common vocabulary and common quantifiable metrics so co2 uh, footprint emissions or sequestration is is the one that seems to be the front runner right now. It also plays into the future of, uh, of and this this idea of having carbon credits and being able to really have proper net positive business activities as an organisation. So I do think that there will be a unified uh, metric that that all businesses, not just startups, but also all businesses will be held to account on, and that will probably be their CO2 contribution, whether that's positive or negative. Um, but I think that from, from our role as Rockstar, an early stage investor, it's really important that we keep the founders at the center of that discussion. So some of the businesses there, the, the, the ambition of a startup sits with the founders, right? And we need to be sympathetic to that and support it and make sure that if their ambition and their positive contribution is more societal, then let's find some quantifiable metrics that we can use that allow them to showcase the positive impact they're having for society, as opposed to environment, for example. Um, so we, we, we try and keep it as open as we can. And for that reason, we haven't been quite as fast to uh, issue a lot of the, the, the impact reports that, uh, that many uh, other investors have, have done already, uh, mainly because we want to wait for the portfolio to, to mature enough and for the founders to really say, this is our metric. This is the one that we're going to run with. Yeah, for, for me, the, the key thing that you said is that um, at pre-seed seed level, it's it's difficult to, to measure uh, those things. But um, if impact is at the core of, of what the company does, then those problems can be solved in the long run. Yeah. Uh, and there's going to be a stage where linking, as you mentioned, like linking uh, impact metrics with what the company does is, is going to be more feasible um, as opposed to the beginning when founders have all sorts of problems to, to solve and uh, this yeah, sort of analysis to, is just not easy. They're, just, they're probably just trying to figure out how to get through the week. Uh, <laughs> how to survive. <laughs> yeah, how to survive. Like, where's the next meal coming from, you know? So uh, you, have to, you have to give enough time and space for it to develop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I, I may just, uh, I, I can only make a, one comment from our end that uh, when when we look at companies, we expect at least some sort of a hypothesis, meaning this solution is a positive, positive contribution or not to, yeah. uh, let's say, to the environmental problems. Uh, but also, I must say that it's it's becoming more common that some, some startups are actually able to give some sort of an indication of the potential in the long run. So for instance, listen guys, if we reach scale and get X amount of whatever is, is, is their target group, so X amount of clients, X amount of businesses that work with us, then we estimate that the potential is, let's say, I don't know, 50 million tons uh, annually. And it also likes, for us, it's it's not so common, but if it's there, then it's much easier to compare the potential between, between different, uh, uh, companies that we that we evaluate so this is this is pretty useful i think the hypothesis approach is good um i i, I where, where it becomes tricky is just making sure that you've got the data maturity on what you're reporting and i think data maturity is really important for for a startup um, to have credibility especially when they're talking to larger organizations like if you're trying to sell into nestle or unilever or one of these these companies mm -hmm. um their their concern is to make sure that the data maturity stands up to, scru to scrutiny 
mm-hmm. so that when you're reporting something or when you're d- delivering something through that there's not a potential greenwashing issue down the line and there's 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 not discrepancy so the hypothesis 100% agree there needs to be in place you need to and it's usually linked to the ambition of the founder uh, we find um but but when it gets to the actual reporting we we, we would rather see uh, c- companies take their time and make sure that the, the data is mature enough to, to 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 really stand up to any sort of questioning. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. Changing the topic a bit, uh, I would like to again refer to the to the podcast with with Keith Kostla because I really I I spent like an hour listening to it and I really yeah. enjoyed your story and uh, everything that you talked about. And uh, big kudos for uh, for those 20 investments that you mentioned. So um, until the, the mid of last year, it was it was 20 investments done by Rockstar Agrifood. Is that that correct? Yeah, we're now at 31. Now it's 31. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, we're so now the, at- the recording Congrats. must have been some time ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. The recording recording was a wee while ago. So last year we did a further 11 to the portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Okay, and uh, I'm mentioning it but because it was pretty evident that uh, you're very busy as a fund and you also mentioned you are the fourth most active food fund in the world. This is this is really super impressive and I can only imagine the amount of uh, work that you had and the hundreds of calls that you and your team had to take. So my question regarding this is um, you must be seeing the same solutions all over again. Uh, obviously in different forms, but I'm, I'm pretty curious, how do you um, try to um, s- still like be an independent thinker and not saying, okay, I've seen it, uh, it didn't work, it doesn't make sense, and then just reject it. Like, how do you um, make sure that your approach is still fresh and uh, uh, you yeah. start with someone like uh, without any bias? Yeah, how do we stay fresh? Um, good, good question because we do we look at hundreds of uh, startups every every month, um, so it's, it's it's definitely a high volume. The so at the time of uh, Geet's podcast that you referenced, we were number four in terms of activity for agri food investments. This this is this says something back to the point that Cassia raised earlier. There's a lot of new invest investors coming to the space, which is fantastic. So we're still in the top ten in terms of activity this uh, last year, but we've pro- we've dipped to I think number eight now. So that also says something that we see a lot of like really well-known brands and VCs who are actually ramping up the number of food tech and agri-tech startups. So that's a really, I just wanted to share that. Um, so there's an update on where we are, where we are today. Um, how do we stay fresh? So uh, we try, and the, the first part is we listen to our mentors, like like yourself, uh, Mathieu, and uh, we listen to, to the feedback that the mentors give us on, uh, on what's happening in their industries and, and also opinions that they might have about startups, because we always want to make sure that the, the founders are talking to some of their mentors um, in, in the group. That's good for two reasons. One is it keeps us fresh and gives us new perspectives. And the second one is from a founder's uh, point of view, they get to meet some of the network and some of the people that they might be working with at Rockstar. So that keeps the conversation pretty fresh. The other way is talking to other investors we sometimes we'll pass on a deal and we'll pass on a startup because uh, we, we perhaps don't we're, we're not excited about the technology or maybe we've seen it before and then we make it we we, we see that one of um, the syndication partners that we have goes forward and invests in them so that means that at that point then we have to stop and go oops did we miss something here and you need to reassess so you're constantly reassessing what the, um, uh, the thesis is but probably the most honest answer here is that I think we I think we are only human and we are guilty of looking at solutions and going, no, seen that before. 
Um, there's only so many vertical farming <laughs> companies that one can look at, for example, uh, that, that, or there's so many, there's only so many last mile delivery solutions that are in place. There's are some areas where it's just really oversubscribed and then you do create a bias for yourself and then it's really difficult to break out of that. Um, so the, the, the last thing I'll say on this is, is one of the things that we do to try and combat that is, is by working in sprints. So that means that we'll have a period of uh, three to six months, depending what the topic is, where we really work on a sprint. Last year's sprint was really looking at food waste and we wanted to, to, to target food loss and food waste at every every stage of the, the food supply. So all the way from farming and production right the way through to the, uh, the retailer and the, the, the consumer. Um, this year, we're looking very closely at regenerative ag, which is what I brought up earlier. So that keeps you focused on one specific area. And then it allows you to ignore some of the noise because uh, we're having some hundreds of startups reaching out to us uh, every, every month. Um, it probably means that we miss on some deals and some opportunities, but you kind of just have to get comfortable uh, with, with, with that because there are there are enough talented founders out there for us to, to, to support. Yeah. So, so when you so. say that you work in sprints, it means like for every before every batch, you say, okay, the theme of this batch should be, let's say, this and that, this and that. This is our focus. But obviously, we, we would still consider everyone else applying. But when it comes to the analysis that we do and like an overview of the landscape, uh, you only focus on one thing. Is 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 this is how it works? Yeah, so we, we are um, we've got a few channels of uh, the, where investors uh, where where startups can potentially apply for investment. There's one is just kind of uh, is, is referrals. That's the most um, impactful channel. So that's where we're we're either having introductions from investors or mentors that we work with or people within the network. Um, another one is inbound uh, applications from startups. Uh, so. Uh, Companies are constantly applying. Um, like you can go on the website, go to www.rockstar.com and apply today. Uh, <laughs> a little, little, little plug there. Um, and, and we do look at every application that comes in. Um, so that, that's another channel. And then the last one is the, the third channel is really on on uh, on our targeted outreach. So we've got there's in the agri-food context, we've got a team of four of us who are really working on on like searching for startups and reaching out to them. And that's the sprint. So that's the topic where we're saying, right, we 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 feel that um, that we've got a gap in the portfolio that we'd like to 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 cover, or we feel that this particular climate challenge is is really important for us, and then we'll we'll, we'll target the um, the outreach uh, on on that specific theme. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So um, yeah, Kasia, wanted to say something? No, no, no. no. Sorry, You're in I the just, flow. Go, go. You, <laughs> you just caught my attention. <laughs> I thought you wanted to. You mentioned it. So, uh, okay, maybe just to uh, to wrap it up a bit. Um, uh, you mentioned it already uh, that where to find you and uh, how to apply. Uh, could, could you give us like two sentences uh, or f uh, uh, what do you offer and who is like a good fit for you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, first of all, what we offer because I think that's that's important. Um, we're trying what we what we do at Rockstar is try and create access or pathways for founders, so early stage entrepreneurs who are um, who've got something there like a like a, a minimum viable product, or they've got initial traction with some pilot sales, or where they don't have a product or sales, perhaps they've got some academic traction that they can look at, and um, they they want to get access to uh, capital. They want to get access to the market and they want to get access to expertise and a community of people that can support them. And that's kind of what we offer. So that's the kind of stage that we look at is this pre-seed um, and seed phase uh, business. And then what we offer is those, those, those access points. 
the way that we do that is um, for capital is through our fund. So we start with an investment. Um, usually tickets are between 100,000 and 250,000 euros as the initial investment, depending on the stage of the company. As part of that proposition, we also take the company through a, a, a five month long program. Uh, and Mathieu, you're, you're obviously involved in that program as a mentor. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and the startup gets to, to, to work alongside talented people such as yourself. Um, and they're also then we, we tailor the content and, uh, and, and the learnings in that uh, program based on what the portfolio company needs. And during the program, we also help to syndicate the next round where we will co-invest. So the capital part comes from uh, the fund where we're, we're continuing to co-invest in startups uh, uh, during the program and beyond. So we, we, we usually expect to have a holding period of somewhere between five and seven years. And then the program helps to facilitate the other topics, the access points that I mentioned, like meeting market partners, meeting mentors for, for access to expertise, meeting with other founders to be able to build out your community and, 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 and really participate in, um, in, in, in the startup community uh, with an agri-food context. So yeah, so that's what we offer. Got it, got it. And obviously we'll put all, all, the, all the relevant links uh, under the video for, to, to, for, for founders to make it easy to, to find you. Uh, my last question is uh, some sort of recommendation to founders, like based on your experiences, some f the, 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 the amount of deals that you see, what do you think would be, uh, what would you like to share with the audience as, as something to, to consider? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think the most in, important thing is, is, um, is access to access to network and expertise beyond capital, beyond valuation of your company um, or beyond the, you know, the initial uh, customers that you have are obviously very important, but getting the right access to mentorship and support is essential for your journey at every point of your business. So if you're an early stage founder, try and link into communities and, and, and ecosystems where there, there's relevant knowledge and there's people who are willing to pay it forward. So that means really delivering you support and expertise and sharing insights with you for free based on the, the the knowledge that at some point you're gonna you're gonna bring something back to the community, and if you're a late stage uh, company, same thing. You 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 pay it, pay it forwards to somebody else uh, who's who's coming in behind and and seek guidance from those people who are uh, those those individuals who are a few stages down the line from where you are. So my advice would be constantly seek mentorship, constantly seek um, a, a guidance and 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 support uh, beyond just capital and and just fundraising for the sake of it. Yeah. Yeah, my, my key takeaway from the call is that this is a very complex space with all sorts of um, moving parts and uh, grayness. And uh, I mean, you can be the best in the world, but without collaborating with others, and as you said, getting mentorship from others and uh, lending the right kind of partners, uh, the big players as well, uh, it's simply going to be very difficult to pull it off. Um, so... Yeah, thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. It was really, really a pleasure speaking with you. Um, thank you so much for, for this episode. And um, yeah, stay tuned, guys, for, for the next ones. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys.